Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration, if you are a visitor. Um, have any questions about what's going on or any questions about our church, uh, please feel free to ask anyone who you've seen serving here, whether it was someone making announcements or up on stage rapping. Um, represent? Okay, so out in the foyer, whatever. If you see someone serving here, you can ask them questions. We are in the book of Philippians. Uh, yesterday we, or yesterday, <laughs> last week, I just loved this year so much, I just thought it was like yesterday. Um, we went through verses 5 through 11, chapter 2, and tonight we're going to cover verses 12 through 18. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would be here in our midst and ministering to us individually, uh, wherever we're at the struggles that we have, the things that um, we're dealing with in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you, have you guys ever watched that show, The Biggest Loser? No? I guess, okay. Let me just toss this whole sermon out. So, it's, it's a show that challenges and it, it encourages um, overweight contestants to lose weight. That's what the show's about. And, and then the winner gets a quarter million dollars. Now I got your attention. You're too skinny. You're too skinny. So it's a good deal. It's a good deal. And and not only do you get this professional trainer and this entire staff to help you out, um, but you get paid a lot at the end if you win. And oftentimes the show um, tells of the backgrounds of the different contestants who who share about how they live these lives of ridicule and and these lives of mockery and humiliation because they were overweight. And it's it's sad how how people treat one another, but um, these contestants, they go under the supervision of, of these trainers and they put them through this exercise program and they monitor their diets. And at the end of the training, you you see this incredible transformation. And they're weighed in every week, so they get to see their transformation right before their eyes, but, but it's still shocking to them at the very end when they show them the beginning picture. And they show them how they change and, and how, how they end up at the very end. And, and it's unbelievably shocking to their family and their friends who, who haven't seen them for a really long time because they were at this camp, and, and they haven't seen them until this training is done. So their website even has this transformation gallery. And the Transformation series is is so popular that it airs in 90 countries. It's produced in over 25 countries. And can you imagine how many people want to be cast in this show? Why do you think that is? I think it's because they expect transformation. They expect transformation if they're accepted on the show. And they expect to be transformed. And there are results that they see that they want. And if they didn't have that expectation, they wouldn't bother being a part of it, would they? And if they didn't look any different at the end of the process, then um, whatever they did at the very start, it would just be a waste of time. It would be a waste of energy. So why bother? But that's not the case. And these these would-be contestants assume that the transformation is just part of the deal. And it's a given that transformation is going to happen. They expect it to happen because they've seen the results from the people that went before them. And they also have this gallery of transformed people. So how about us? Do we expect transformed lives, meaning that we're becoming more like Jesus? 
Do we have a, a sense of expectation that God, the best trainer of them all, is going to transform us as a church, transform us individually? Because we do have a gallery of transformed people before us, don't we? You open up the Bible, that's our gallery. Transformed people. And you know of people even within this church that have been transformed to where they were at, to where they are now. And Paul writes, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you, you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Let's first take a look at verse 14. It says, do all things without complaining and disputing. See, this should be an expectation of ours. This is something we should work towards, doing all things without complaining and disputing. See, we're a relatively young church. We're eight years old this month. But we still have a lot of progress to do, you know, in regards to this. And this is a serious topic here. How are we doing at this? How are you doing individually with this? What things are you complaining about, arguing about, disputing about? And I hear people complain to me about a lot of things. And some things pertain directly to me and some things pertain to others. And it, and it happens here. And I know a lot of people in ministry and who work in churches. Do you know what things people complain and argue about the most in churches? Any idea? Survey says um, teaching and music. Isn't that ironic? Redeemed people in churches complaining about the style in which scripture is shared. And what style of music we should use to adore, love, worship and bring joy to God. That's what we complain about. That's what we dispute about. And I guess I, I understand it a little bit because um, we're in a really diverse place here, right? We, we have all the types of different ways that people communicate with one another. We have different ways of learning. There, there are different ages and generations represented here, different cultures and different backgrounds. And there are a lot of people with different musical tastes, right? So the people who like hip-hop and rap and reggae and R&B and rock and country and pop and alternative and blah, 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 techno. And um, some who don't like music at all. And on top of that, we're trying to reach the lost people who are so far away from God, whose lives are just trash and in shambles, and they usually listen to Christian music. Music's good. Different styles of music minister to people differently. Sharing the scriptures is good. Different styles of teaching minister to people differently. But if we sincerely seek God... Won't, won't he give us wisdom? Won't he give us discernment and insight as a church and individually to, to lead us into the future? He will. But sometimes we, we focus more on style issues than, than what, what really matters more, which is what kind of people are we producing around here? Doesn't that matter more? And have you ever, ever met that person who's never pleased with anything? 
Nothing is ever right to them. They're just always grumpy or grouchy. There's always something to complain about or just be negative about. We just received this gift certificate to a department store um, because my daughter's birthday was last week. Um, Her feet grow too fast. Anyway, so there's a sales lady in the shoe department who I think is related to Grumpy Dwarf and Oscar the Grouch. Um, No smile, not helpful, uh, just just really snappy and and crabby. And she's in the wrong line of work. I mean, she should have been a pastor. So so she's behind um, the cash register and just complaining the whole time with her colleague, like putting these these boxes of shoes away. And I overheard her her colleague ask her um, if she was happy. And she said yes. And I was like. What? I almost broke into laughter. I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? And I wanted to go over there and tell her, if you're happy, you should really tell your face. Like, <laughs> there, there are people like this in church. And I'm not going to point you grumpy, grouchy people out, but you know who you are. Right? Grumpy people in the house. Like, you're here. I know it. <laughs> Just complaining all the time. And, 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 um, but I have to admit that you make ministry entertaining. I, I, you do. You do. And, and when we first started, um, we were in this nightclub. No. And the music was, was, was so loud in there. It was so loud. And, and I shared my concerns. And then we, I, I started wearing earplugs. And, and I wasn't alone. I, I noticed others wearing earplugs, too. And even visitors that were coming, they didn't have earplugs, but I'd see, like, these white things in their ears. I'm like, what? What is that? They went to the bathroom, they got toilet paper, and they put it in their ears. It was that loud. And so there's this guy that comes in just complaining about how loud the music is. And let's just call him Oscar, because I need to protect Oscar and his real identity. So Oscar didn't just complain about music volume. He complained about everything. He'd complain about everything at the church. And when he felt the staff and the ministry leaders weren't listening, he'd go up to a complete stranger and tell them how unhappy he was. So he moved. So we moved from this nightclub to the Seventh Day Adventist Church in Berkeley. And I thought that the move was going to, to, to cure our volume problem. It didn't. And uh, Oscar made sure that the church staff knew about it. And he'd often come into the lobby with his with his fingers in his ears and and telling the ushers that it was too loud and and telling first time visitors it was too loud. I mean, what a way to be greeted at church, right? You're just like, it's too loud in there. And a complete stranger coming out of worship, coming to you in, in the service and saying it's too loud. And then he'd say, hi, nice to meet you. Just really gross because his finger was in his ear and just... Then, then we started. Then, then we started getting the Berkeley police coming around, and, and Berkeley city officials started coming around. And I would see them across the street, and they would have this decibel meter pointing at our church. And we were within the limits. We were. And initially, I thought that it was the neighbors reporting us, which at times it was because I I, I heard neighbors complaining about it too. And this place was so hot in the summers, but we had to close all the windows. It was like this. We were baking in there because we were trying to prevent the noise from going up. And um, the funny thing is I saw Oscar out there like pretty often with those guys. And I don't know for sure if he was the one that ever called there, but he was sure there a lot when those guys were out there. And so so this is the point I'm trying to make. I, I'm I'm protecting Oscar's real identity, but but um, you I, I can be bought for a price. I'll let you know if you just pay me for it. But um, he, he doesn't love his family. He told that to me. He confessed that to me. 
He doesn't love people, especially those that think differently than he does. And what he said to me and, and his actions proved that to me. And his idea of who was acceptable at church and who wasn't, and he was just a very bitter person and judgmental person, self-righteous, one of the worst I've really ever come across. And he was a Christian. And you would think that the disturbing thing that he wasn't changing, but that actually wasn't the disturbing thing. The disturbing thing was that no one was surprised by his behavior. No one was expecting him to change, even though people wanted him to change. And even though he came to church week after week and year after year and and does this church stuff and says this thing should be done and this shouldn't be done. But he himself didn't change his heart. And we didn't expect him to change, even though we had certain expectations. We expected that he would affirm our statement of faith. We expected that he would know the Bible somewhat. We expected that he would attend Sunday services and serve in the services. We expected he would give money in form of tithes and offerings. We expected that he would stay away from certain sins. But here's what we didn't expect. We did not expect progress in his life where Oscar would live the way that Jesus would live if Jesus were in Oscar's place. We did not expect him to do all things without complaining and disputing. We did not expect him to do anything without complaining or disputing. So we didn't expect that he would be verse 15. Shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. See, do we expect transformation in people's lives when they encounter Jesus? Is that an expectation of ours? In Sheldon Van Walken's book, A Severe Mercy, he writes, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber, joyless, when they are self-righteous, such as smug and and complacent consecration when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, we are to be blameless. We're to be harmless children of God without fault. We are to shine as lights in the world. Where do churches and Christians get this idea that people in the church are superior to people outside the church? We are to be light in a dark world, right? We are to be givers of hope. Christians have their pet issues that they like to lead with, don't they? And the latest issues Christians have embraced is the same-sex marriage issue. Yes, one of the church's duties is to be clear on the teachings of scriptures. God's intent for sexual intimacy is that it is expressed in the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. But there are churches, there are individual Christians who talk about this in a harmful way. In a way that's not so innocent and it's actually talked about in a hurtful way. That's arrogant, that's judgmental, that's condemning. Verse 15 assumes we are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We know that, but we are to be blameless and we are to be harmless. We are to shine as lights in the world. It's not us versus them. There is no them. We are all people loved by God. Jesus wants us to love people and and to to provide hope for people, to provide hope for everyone. And we want to be a church that's open to everyone. Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite authors, 
and modern day philosophers. He wrote uh, these wise words in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way, as in the way, the capital of the way, Christianity, by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boring, lifeless, obsessive and dissatisfied. Yet such Christians are everywhere. And what they are missing is the wholesome liveliness springing up from a balanced vitality within the freedom of God's loving rule. Spirituality, wrongly understood or pursued, is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. Listen to that last sentence again. Spirituality, wrongly understood or pursued, is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. Think about what Jesus did. Actually, what Jesus did a lot. He corrected spirituality wrongly understood or pursued, didn't he? Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says it five times in that chapter. You have heard that it was said. And then he says, but I say to you. Jesus is giving us his way of life. And he's making it available to us. He's freeing us from what we've imposed on ourselves. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face. Isn't that like a beautiful picture? No hiding, no masks, right? Unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, that word transformed is the Greek word metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis, which means a complete or marked change in appearance, character, or condition. So a transformation or becoming a new creature. Paul uses um, a form of this word in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, where he writes, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. The root word that Paul uses there is this, uh, is, is this Greek word morpho, where we get the word morph. So remember the word mighty, or the show Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? Do you guys remember that show? It's about these teenagers who, who morph into superheroes, right? And, and, and they each had their own battle-colored battle suit that was spandex. I don't know what it is about superheroes and spandex. I, one, of my, one of my friend's little brothers um, dressed up as the Red Power Ranger for a summer job, and he shouldn't really be wearing spandex. Um, especially Red, because he looked more like Santa Claus than he did the Power Ranger. And anyway, Red Ranger. Red Ranger was the leader, right? And he would yell out this phrase, It's Morphin' Time! And that's, that's when they would yell out their different dinosaurs, right? And be transformed. Tyrannosaurus or Pterodactyl, like all this stuff, right? And they chose like vicious ones, which I just didn't understand. I mean, where's the priest? What about Brontosaurus? Anyway, Paul is telling the church, it's morphin' time as a leader in the church. Why can Paul say this at the church or towards the church? Because of Jesus. Jesus came down from heaven as a servant, living out what it meant to be rightly understood, rightly pursued. And he showed us by example how to live. And then he died on the cross to pay for our sins, a debt that you and I couldn't pay. And then he rose from the dead, defeating sin. And now the Holy Spirit is with us, in us, living in us, empowering us to do what we can't do on our own. And now 
we are empowered to do powerful things. Ordinary people receiving extraordinary power. And this is an expectation that we ought to have. That God will help angry people become peaceful people. That God will help sexually immoral people become pure. That God will help prideful people become meek. That God will help greedy people become generous. That God will help grumpy people become joyful. That God will help ladder climbers become people who gird a towel and start serving. See, region, it's morphin' time. Right? But instead of Tyrannosaurus, it's a dove. It's an ox. It's a donkey. Right? Let's be superheroes who are blameless, who are harmless, who are peaceful, who are serving. And if we want to be about sharing God, God's good news and, and saving lives, we need to be transformed ourselves. Frank Laubach, a missionary in the Philippines, just an awesome disciple of Jesus, who concerned himself with issues like poverty and illiteracy and injustice, someone who traveled all around the world as a proponent of world peace. He wrote this book, in his book, um, Man of Prayer. In that book, there's this this quote, the simple program of Christ for winning the whole world is to make each person he touches magnetic enough with love to draw others. Isn't that what it's all about? Drawing others to Christ with our love, being empowered by him to do that. And we can appear to be a successful church with cool service opportunities or great programs and nice facilities and, and great art and cool Sunday services and trying to draw bigger crowds. But, but, but that's not what church is about. Those are good things, but that's not church. Are our lives transformed? Is it morphin time? Can we have a transformation gallery on our website, just like the biggest loser loser does, that shows what's happening in our lives? And don't don't think about anyone else right now. Just think about yourself. Okay, where are you at? Imagine yourself a year ago and, and compare it to who you are today. And are there changes that show that Jesus has been your trainer? There's another way of life that's available to us now. How is how how is this understood and how is this pursued? So let's go to verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. It's something that we have to do. Performance, right? Accomplishment, achievement. That's an expectation that is expected. We have to do that from which something results. Then go to verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. See, change is not dependent on you. Change is dependent on God. But you are not to be passive in what God is doing. You're not just to be sitting on the couch eating bonbons watching The Biggest Loser. But you're out there doing something for yourself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. And Paul here is talking about discipline training here. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. See, there's a difference between training 
and trying. There's a difference between training to do something and trying to do something, and it's actually a really, really big difference. Sometimes my wife watches mixed martial arts fights with me. We live in a ninja commune, so it's required viewing. And so some of these guys are, are ripped, right? And it, it's not natural how big their muscles are. So one night I asked my wife um, as she was watching this with me, and I said, Honey, do you, do you want me to work out and look like one of these guys? And she said, No, I like you the way you are. And I, and I was like, She's so sweet. So in order to be as sweet as she was, I continued eating my bonbons, watching the fights. And so let's start by physical transformation. And let's use a marathon as an example, since Paul does. How does physical transformation happen? All right, let's take a quick poll here. How many of you can run a marathon today? Two. Awesome. If I ever run out of gas, I'm going to call you. Hold on. How many, um, now I'm talking about running, no walking at all. You can run the whole way. Okay. How many of you could run a marathon if you tried really, really hard? If you just tried really hard? Anybody? I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> Be careful if you put your hand up. I'm going to hold you to it. So I got one right there. We're running. We're going to run after this service. I'm not running. I'm waiting for you, eating bonbons. <laughs> You can't run a marathon today if you didn't raise your hand because you haven't trained for it. If you raised your hand, you trained for it, didn't you? And I think that most people here could run a marathon if you trained to run for a marathon. Training. What does it mean to train? To train means that I position myself in such a way. I arrange things in my life in such a way that it enables me to do what I can't do by my direct effort. See, training, training is basic to human transformation. And generally speaking, any type of real transformation in any area of our lives involves training, not trying. And that's the general nature of training. And, and, and it's in any area of your life where, where human attainment uh, is necessary, right? So whether it's speaking another language or, or playing a musical instrument, or creating um, a, a piece of artwork, or, or sports, or being friendly. It all requires training. And if you want to speak another language, you're going to have to practice. You have to train. If you want to create great music or a great piece of art, you're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to practice at it. You're going to have to train. If you want to be good at a sport, you're going to have to work out. You're going to have to train. Isn't that true in all areas of our lives? It's true for physical transformation. It's true for intellectual transformation. Why is it not true for spiritual transformation? It is. You have to train in spiritual transformation. We have to train. We are in training for reigning. To reign in the kingdom of God. And much like everything else in life, we just want instant gratification, don't we? We don't want to train for things. We want to be good at things right away and not have to train for them. We want to buy things we can't afford. So instead of saving for it, we use credit. And instead of trying to lose weight in a healthy way and working towards it, we want it like right now. That's why all these little pills are so popular with us. And in our spiritual lives, instead of training for it and getting to this great point where we're close to God, we just want something quick. 
I'll listen to a sermon or I'll listen to worship music or whatever. You just want to press a button and, and have things, poof, I'm godly. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. First, in Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul writes, Exercise yourself toward godliness, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that of which is to come. See, many of us are guilty of badly overestimating what we can do by trying and seriously underestimating what God can do through us if we just allowed Him into our lives by entering the right kind of training. And how often have you heard something that um, you, know, you think will be very beneficial for you to implement in your life and you start telling yourself, when I get out of here, I'm going to try really, really hard to do that. And it happens during mission trips, like the short-term mission trips, right? It happens during Christian conferences and seminars. It happens um, at church services where, you know, you hear something and, and it moves you and you're affected by it. And then you leave that church service or the seminar or the mission field and you think, I'm going to try really, really hard to be more like Jesus. I'm going to try. But it's not about trying. It's about training. You can't try to be like Jesus. You have to train to be like Jesus. See, I have a master, a Jedi master, Master Yoda. Not only am I a ninja, I'm a Jedi. And he says, I'm going to try to copy his voice because I can't do it justice. Do or do not. There is no try. And he also said, ready are you? You know of ready? For 800 years, I have trained Jedi. 800 years. That's patience. And you don't necessarily have to have patience in trying, but you do in training. You can't try to be patient. Okay, I'm going to try to be patient now. I'm patient. I'm going to try it. You can't try to be patient. You have to train to be patient so that it's natural. Right? And you know that phrase, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. No. (laughs) If you don't succeed, you have to find out why you didn't succeed. You have to find out why you failed. And then you train for success. If you keep doing the same things, right? Practicing the wrong things, you're just going to get the same result. That's the definition of insanity. You have to find out what you're doing wrong, change it, and practice the right things. You have to train rightly. It does no good to keep doing the wrong things and expecting a different result. Have you ever tried really, really hard to be patient with a three-year-old? That, my friends, takes patience. And if you haven't tried it, you should. I'll let you borrow my daughter. Or go serve in the toddler ministry then you'll have this new appreciation for for what it means to be patient. And you'll look at parents in a totally different way because they'll give you hope that patience is available. Right? It's possible. Otherwise, God wouldn't instruct us to be patient. But in order to become patient, what do you have to do? You have to train. You have to position yourself. You have to arrange yourself in such a way that enables you to do what you can't do by direct effort. You have to arrange your life around certain activities so that God empowers you to become more patient. 
And you can train for this. For example, let's stick with patience. Remember that you have to arrange yourself, you have to position yourself in such a way that enables you to do what you can't do by direct effort, right? So if you want to become more patient, you go to Whole Foods at the peak of when it's busy, and you get in the longest checkout line with the slowest cash register person, cashier, for the next month. And while you're in line, you ask Jesus to to grow patience in you. And while you're at it, you let the person directly behind you, not any further back, because if you do, you're going to cause a ruckus. Directly behind you, in front of you. Or how about this? You purposely drive in the slow lane on the 880 or 80, especially during rush hour, for the next month. Or, for the next month, you can babysit my three-year-old. <laughs> without pay. And if you do these things, especially the babysitting one, You give yourself to God and and you'll see something change. And what starts happening is that it engages you into what is known as spiritual disciplines. Ooh, spiritual disciplines. Kind of freaky to some people. Discipline. People get weirded out by it. It's something that only freaky Christians do, right? Don't get freaked out by it. You do it in any part of your life. You've had to be disciplined to get where you're at. If you're in college, you had to be disciplined in your studies, right? You do it all the time. It's natural. They're they're there so you practice them, so you can master them. Not that you become a master of disciplines, but that those disciplines aid you in becoming a disciple. Hence the word discipline, right? Which aids you in becoming a disciple. A disciple of Jesus who can experience what life is really all about. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they have they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus wants to morph us into people like him. And you can't do that on your own and you can't do it by trying. You can't change yourself, but but you're just not some spectator either, right? We're not to be passive and do nothing about it. See, there are things that we can do to free ourselves so, so God can work in us. Just as there are things that we can do to interfere with God working in us that keep us addicted to things of this world. That's why we need to train and not try. There are two disciplines, right? The trainings that I want to highlight because I think they're important. Solitude and study. So let's first briefly cover solitude. Do you ever get tired of people who always want something from you? Do you ever uh, want to just get away from the pressures of whatever you do in service or ministry or work or school or life? Not that you're escaping from those things, but you're just getting time so that you can recharge, that you can be whole again. Taking time away from phone calls, text messages, emails, the demands of whatever, opinions, noise. Just being alone with God. Doesn't that sound peaceful? Just repeatedly going off to being alone with God, just like Jesus did. Jesus did that a lot. And we need to arrange to be alone. We need to position ourselves to be alone, in silence, out of human contact, for lengthy periods of time. That's what allows my inner compass from whirling all over the place in response to all the demands of people. The demands of family, the demands of friends, the demands of, of the church, demands of work or whatever is going on. Right. And this is what allows our soul's wholeness to be restored for us to get back to a healthy place that those demands have just stretched us out. And we're just like, oh, man, help me, help me. 
helps us get back. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10 instructs us to be still and know that I am God. And if you want to be freed from all the hustle and bustle of the world, and if you want to be freed from feeling lonely, try solitude. And it opens the door for you to productively engage with God so that he can fill you with himself. Study. This is about saturating your mind with the scriptures. Not just to learn about them and accumulate knowledge, but to transform you from who you are to someone who is becoming more like Jesus. So that the things that you study um, change how you think. Not just for facts. I mean, it's a living document. It's a dynamic, historical, scriptural reference just filled with the Holy Spirit uh, and and God's heart. How do you act? Um, What what you do, what you say, and, and all those things so that they can closely resemble the love and the joy of Jesus. See, those are two fundamental ones. And there are many disciplines that will help us in various struggles of our life. The disciplines that you need depend on the things that you struggle with, the sins that you struggle with. So we're in the book of Philippians, which is a joy book. So let's take joy as an example. Joy within a Christian is mandatory. There's no such thing as a joyless Christian. That's an oxymoron. Paul tells the Philippian church to rejoice. And if you lack joy, what does that say about your relationship with God? Is he real? If you lack joy, don't you think that you've already shot your foot about uh, when you're when you're trying to evangelize? I mean, how you approach somebody like you should accept Jesus. <laughs> he, he, he makes me happy. We are to be joyful. God is with us. There's reason to be re- rejoicing, right? So let's say you struggle with joy. How can you become more joyful and not have it be fake? How can you become a genuinely joyful person? And it doesn't work by trying really, really hard. You have to train to be joyful. So let's say you struggle with joy. Okay? In the Old Testament, people are often ordered to stop working and go to feast days. Party. They're training to be joyful, which is a characterization of someone who has a relationship with God. And maybe you need a feast day. Some of you grumpy people need a feast year. So how about starting out your day and you you eat what you love to eat? You wear what you love to wear, even if it's spandex or a Power Ranger outfit. You hang out with people that bring you joy. You you do things that make you you glad that you're alive. You listen to music that makes you thankful that you're alive. And then you stay away from those killjoys and those wet blankets. You know, the, the Eeyores of your life. And the ones that sap the joy out of you every time you talk with them. And just tell them that, that for, for one day, this is my feast day, no joy sucking this day. Just tomorrow. You could uh, come back tomorrow. Okay? And then, see, we need to attend to our feelings. God cares about our mental health just as much as He cares about any area of health in your life. And we have to care for our souls and emotions are a real part of our lives. And sometimes Christians like to ignore that entirely. They think that it's some form of like weird science or something that, oh, don't, don't address those things. You just need Jesus. That's all. 
Right? He created this stuff, man. He created our emotions. Or, or sometimes Christians swing to the other end and they, they let the emotions just get the best of them. Come on, Jesus will help you overcome those things. You don't have to let them get the best of you. But we do need to attend to our feelings. And, and we have to remember that love is the foundation of the spiritual life. And that joy is the key factor in the Christ life. Joy is not just a sensation or a pleasure. It's a persistent, steady sense of well-being. And, and the things that support joy is our hope in the, in the goodness of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we hear these terms, hope, joy, peace. And then there are other uh, uh, central themes to the Christian faith, like faith um, and love. And these are terms that don't just entail feelings. These are conditions that involve every part of our life, including the bodily part and, and the social context in which we find ourselves. They prepare us for how we live our life. And yes, there are feelings attached to these conditions and the positive feelings describe those who, who live in the presence of God. The, and these feelings, the, these feelings of, of joy, peace, these will displace the feelings of bitterness and anger and other emotions that describe living in the flesh. Jesus told us in John chapter 15, verses 10 through 11, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. See, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Full. What does that mean? It means there's no more room. There's no more room for more. Right? Abiding in God's love gives us the source of joy. God is the source of it all. Faith, hope, joy, love, peace. So is it really possible to enter into the, the kind of life that Jesus talked about? Yes. But only through the power of God. It's not done by our own, our, our own efforts. But we're not to be passive about what God does in our life either. Paul instructs us to enter into training. So we get involved in serving with each other, serving one another, cheering for one another, holding each other accountable for, for this morphing process and the mission of this church, sharing the good news, saving lives, depend on, depends on God uh, making the people that, that you're sitting next to right now magnetic with love to draw others so that we're not passive about it. See, it's morphing time. Let me share with you a story of someone in my life where, where this morphine was powerful. Dr. Felix was the president at Azusa Pacific University when I was a student there. And years afterwards, he, he just he still cared about me. And I would bump into him every so often. And he'd ask, ask me how I was doing. And, and one day I shared with him how, how I was having a tough time at my job. The very next day I received in, in the mail these various articles that were hand-cut with scissors and, and addressing the things that I was going through. That was crazy to me. President of a university taking the time out to cut articles for me. And then his wife Vivian was such a beautiful disciple of Jesus. She, she ministered to, to young women on campus, on campus, even in her illness, which I'm going to share about. See, she died after fighting cancer for over two years. And Dr. Felix wrote a book titled The School of Dying Graces. And I'm going to take some excerpts from the book and skip around a little bit. 
Dr. Felix starts the book out with a journal entry from his wife, Vivian, while she was suffering from cancer. And it reads, give me a new name, Lord, bringer of hope. Let me, through my experience, bring new and living hope to those who have no hope. Lord God, I prayed two years ago, change me, and you have. Now let me help others to live the abundant life in you. He writes, Vivian died an epic struggle with cancer. I had been certain that God would heal her, but God did not answer my prayers for her physical recovery, nor those of my family, our beloved friends, and a vast Christian community who loved us and supported us. In the war against my wife's cancer, I had been given a job to do, eventually assigned to me by Vivian herself, to pray for her healing while she prepared herself for dying. Our 35th wedding anniversary came in August following Vivian's death in June. I believed I had failed at my task. Had my faith been greater, had I prayed more consistently and with fewer and and greater fervor, then Vivian and I would have been celebrating our anniversary together, planning for our next year of ministry at the helm of Azusa Pacific University, University and future retirement. At that time, my only option besides blaming myself was to blame God. Since then, on on the better days, I've come to see glimpses of God's deeper and mysterious plan. But on that brilliant blue day, my sky was dark. That August afternoon, I received a card with a photo of a woman's hand on top of a man's hand. Inside were these words. God made our hands fit for each other. Lower in her own handwriting, my beloved wife had added, until our hands will meet together. Before her death, Vivian had given the card to a friend who promised to mail it the day before our anniversary. That was like her. She loved gardening and she understood that a good harvest required loving consistency. I looked out over the garden that she and I had planted and tended together that spring now overtaken by weeds. I remembered the love Vivian had for the process of growing living fruit, the nurture, the the pruning, and the daily care. As part of my grieving, I read and reread a series of journals that Vivian kept during her illness. Over and over, through my tears, I was struck with the spiritual passion that had been seeded in her suffering. In reading her journals, I felt as if I were watching it take root, grow, and blossom into an otherworldly beauty. I began taking notes. In an effort to duplicate Vivian's spiritual growth in my own life, I simply retracted her steps, read the books she read, prayed the prayers she did, and followed the spiritual discipline she had developed. I had a double purpose in mind, to write a book detailing her experiences using excerpts from her spiritual journal and to heal my own heart. In the summer of that same year, I spent nearly every day in the library reading the Desert Fathers and Mothers, taking notes on prayer techniques, exploring solitude and silence, and imprinting the word on, on, on my heart. Now, four years later, after my wife's death, I have begun to understand how my own broken heart can begin to mend as I live a new season of life without her. I can see the impact of Vivian's life and death and the faith and lives of hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. In the way she faced adversity with faith and died with grace, she planted seeds that were already ripening into a great harvest. Through the eyes of faith, Vivian came to grips with the paradox that in the process of our suffering and dying, God's greater purpose of life in full can be revealed. Through obedience unto death, Vivian began to catch glimpses of God working through her to accomplish purposes far greater than her own physical healing. 
More and more she understood her faith was influencing others and weaving threads of God's present redemption into his eternal plan. And Vivian writes in one of her journal entries, I don't know why I am dying of cancer when you could have healed me at any point during the treatment. But I know I can live for you today. Lord, make me beautiful of soul and that and then let others see into my soul. Let my mind constantly be on you. Let me play the game of minutes and utilize my time to pray for others. Expand my life outward, Lord. Let my life have ultimate meaning. Allow me to bring hope and your love to others. How did she do it? Seconds are ticking by, minutes are crawling, hours and days are passing by slowly, weeks and years are just elapsing at a snail's pace, and without explanation of why the cancer was taking her physical life, and she laid there physically dying while looking to serve others, praying for others. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Vivian had something in this world uh, that, that this world doesn't have much of. She had power. Lying there in her bed suffering, she had incredible power. She shined as lights in the world. She held fast the word of life. And then she lived these next two verses, 17 and 18, and saying, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Poured out as a drink offering. This is talking about total devotion to God. No turning back. Being sold out. Fully committed to sacrificial love and to service. Is that, is that us collectively as a church? Is that, individ, is that us individually as Christians? Do we give of ourselves sacrificially? Do you give of yourself sacrificially? And how are we in serving? This is a picture of our dedication to God and and our service to him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Joshua said in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. See, we have choices to make. Just like Vivian had choices to make. Choices about disciplines in our life. Trainings in our life. How we're going to live. How we're going to die. Who we're going to serve. Whether we're going to be glad and rejoice even in difficult times. Let's pray. God, thank you for the saints that have walked before us. Like Paul. Like Vivian. We pray, Lord, that um, your Holy Spirit would empower us to do likewise. Lord, um, so often we, we try to be more Christ-like. But we realize that it's not about trying as much as it is about training. Lord, so I ask that you, as you do the changing in our life, that we recognize that we're not just to sit down and, and be passive about what you're doing, but that we're to take part in that. But knowing that you are the one that actually does that work, because we know that we can't do it ourselves, that we need you and your extraordinary power to change ordinary people.
In Jesus' name.